Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you a first-rate academic, Bruce Gentleson from Duke University. Bruce is a professor of public policy and political science at Duke University in North Carolina. Uh, he was also the director of what is now the Terry Sanford uh, School of Public Policy. Um, this from 2000 to 2005. And he was also the Henry Kissinger Chair on Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress. Bruce, however, is not just an academic. He is indeed very much involved in the has been involved in the policy world. He was a senior advisor to U.S. Uh, State Department policy planning director, and he was a senior foreign policy advisor to Vice President Al Gore. I wanted to talk to Bruce particularly today about a number of articles uh, and material that he's recently written. One, uh, the liberal order uh, is not coming back. This was an article Bruce wrote recently in Democracy Journal. But in particular, I wanted to review with Bruce um, his recently released book, The Peacemakers, Leadership Lesson from 20th Century Statesmen. So let's join uh, Bruce uh, in this discussion. This is episode 21 uh, in Shaking the Global Order American foreign policy in the age of Trump. So, uh, welcome, Bruce. It's a real pleasure to have you with us uh, to talk about uh, uh, shaking the global order. Well, thank you, Alan. And um, it's always good to talk with you. And to do it as a podcast makes our conversation go even further than if it's just you and I over a cup of coffee. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, let me let me start by uh, raising a few questions related to an article you do, did relatively recently, and uh, that's uh, The Liberal Order Isn't Coming Back, What's Next? That's a piece you did, I think it was in the journal Democracy. Um, and you suggest that many of us in IR, your friends of course, um, have, been, a have analyzed the liberal international order, but possibly have failed to ask the right question. You said in the article, is the liberal international order the optimal system for the 21st century world. While it worked well for many decades, the LIO, the Liberal International Order, was showing substantial signs of strain pre-Trump. That shouldn't surprise us as much as it seems to have. And I guess my question to you is, Bruce, why not? Why shouldn't it have surprised us, um, given you know the long span and the healthy development of the liberal international order over 70 years. No, you're right. This was an article in Democracy Journal of Ideas. Um, came out in March or so. And, um, you know, we actually had a long dinner in Washington with a bunch of people to talk about about policy and, and academic people. I guess the core argument that you're touching upon there, you know, really is like the argument about Frank Fukuyama's end of history, right? Mm -hmm. And the notion that, you know, that he articulated then was that we had reached the point you know, both in terms of, uh, you know, capitalism, market-based systems, and democracy as the political order, that was sort of the culmination of historical forces. Uh, and now that we'd reached those, history would only, you know, deal with sort of the small 
you know, aspects, not not fundamental change. And we've seen what's happened to that in, in the 25 years since then. And so it's the, really the same question, that the liberal international order, you know, was premised on a set of conditions in the international system post-1945, mm-hmm. a particular distribution of power, uh, a particular set of norms, uh, a particular set of threats, for which it was constructed and learning the lessons from its own immediate past of the 1930s. Um, in the 21st century, those underlying factors, distribution of power, nature of threats, uh, and a lot of that's about the role of the United States and some norms, uh, have been changed. They haven't been like 180 degrees changed. Uh, and so why would the same order work if the underlying pillars, if you will, have changed? And and, and I think there'd been a sense that there's a whole other discussion we can have about has it worked as well as claimed mm-hmm. uh, but but you know there's a whole even if you if you if you argue that it has worked that well um, you know the pillars have changed and therefore as we've seen in many other periods in history there's no reason to think that the evolution of what it takes for global peace prosperity and security would stay the same 70 years later well, that's fair, but I mean, it's, you think about it. I mean, we went through a dramatic change um, in the end of the Cold War, uh, and there the United States then seemed to stand alone as the kind of sole superpower, and uh, you know, uh, and yet the order seemed to evolve as well. John Eikenberry, our colleague from Princeton, describing how it had opened up. It included a variety of actors now that were not necessarily democratic. It seemed it seemed to be chugging along pretty well, even though there had been a significant shift, change in the distribution of power and you know the nature of uh, the leading states. Well, I think that it wasn't chugging along that well, and I think okay. you know if we see. Um, and this is another part of the argument I tried to make in the article, to think about Trump as effect, not just cause. Uh, and Brexit, you know, what what brought that vote about? And and in the article, I, I think I look at four key aspects of the liberal international order. And one is globalization. And the politics on trade and globalization in the United States begin to shift in the early 1970s. The 1974 trade bill was the first one that the labor movement opposed. Uh, and you had the, you know, the Nixon shock of 1971. You had the so-called voluntary export restraints on autos with Japan in 79 to 81. And so you see the cumulative effect of, of you know, sort of a discontent, you know, about let's just call it globalization with winners and losers that speeds up in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And we both know that a lot of people that think they <clears throat> lost their job to trade really lost it to technology. But nevertheless, this was cumulating, and Trump tapped it. You know, the Brexit campaign tapped it, but it didn't invent it. And similarly with the other three areas, I talk about the underperformance of international institutions. You know, we liberal internationalists that argue against the John Boltons of the world, that institutions are important. Mm. We're right about that. But what we don't do enough of is a tough love and acknowledge the ways that they're underperforming and put a lot of emphasis on how to fix that, whether it's the World Food Program falling short or the High Commissioner on Refugees or UN peacekeeping. You know, or the World Health Organization. You go down the list; they were seriously underperforming uh, as institutions. Uh, third was the whole democracy model. Um, you know, we—it's been striking. And I actually wrote another short piece on this in early 2016. So before 
you know, Trump got elected and before Brexit, mm-hmm. that, that talked about the three patterns across Western democracies, maybe less so in Canada, you can tell me, but, but all over <laughs> Europe and the United States, which was this sense of economic dislocation that was feeding the left and the right. You know, some of the Trump voters had voted for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. And in Europe, you have both Podemos in Spain and Syriza in Greece, you know, as well as the right-wing movements. Um, and secondly, a cultural anxiety, uh, not just Syrian refugees, but the legacy of colonialism in Britain and France. Denmark, that nice little social democracy where the second largest party in parliament is anti-immigrant. Uh, and third was the, was the sense of um, a terrorism at home. Uh, and, and as I looked across Europe, I saw that happening with different manifestations and different leaders, you know, really in every country as well as in the United States. And so these were some of the aspects, as well as the change in American power. The United States' role as guarantor of the system uh, was based on a certain distribution of power that really started to fade uh, even before the Iraq War. The Iraq War was a punch in the solar plexus. Uh, Obama had a particular approach. So these things were all there, and I'm kind of trying to draw attention both among our friends and colleagues as well as the political world from not just focusing on Trump, uh, but to really understanding why the liberal order was weakening before he came along and bulldozed it. Okay, so let's look a little bit at the, well, the bulldozing in two senses. You did, in your article, as you said, uh, make a significant point about the fact that the anti-Trump, anti-globalization uh, wave was already there in uh, in U.S. politics, and he kind of rides it, right? He amplifies it, but he also rides it. Um, and you suggested, and others have suggested, and there's research to back it up, that we're not looking just at you know, kind of economic income inequality, but there's also a kind of strong identity aspect to it uh, as well. Um, uh, you know, almost a, you know, it's a little strong, but uh, certain certain aspects of kind of tribal uh, distinctions. But then the question becomes: if it isn't just economic, if there is this cultural and identity aspect. What can politicians do about that? I mean, if if the consequences really arising, Brexit and the other um, European countries that you've just suggested. I mean, what do you do if it's ju- not just economic inequality? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And the way you put it about he both rode the wave and then amplified it gets it the you know the the two aspects of the dynamics. Um, some of it, I think, is a sense. Um, well, first of all, it is true. Social psychologists uh, will always tell us that those who appeal to people's fear and anxiety have a much easier job than those who appeal to people's hope and, you know, sort of caringness, right? Mm-hmm. So you're starting off, and we've seen that in a number of societies historically. Um, but within that, I think there is a sense, uh, particularly after the Great Recession, that um, people really wanted to know that you're not a Hillary Clinton, you know, 43 bullet points, <laughs> but, you know, a core, you know, frame, you know, that would give people a sense of that you both respected them, mm-hmm. you know, and that you were including them. And it wasn't, you know, it's not that you should force out, you know, the, the people of color, 
but that you were including them and that you weren't too much leaning in the other direction. So, for example, to me, the Obama great missed opportunity. Uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel had this phrase when he was chief of staff that a crisis, you know, never missed crisis as an opportunity for big things. I think the and Chinese they, bought that one a long time before. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he, he got a lot of press for it, you know. Um, and, um, and, you know, it was a perfect opportunity for, for a major, uh-huh. you know, whether it was infrastructure, a variety of other things in the American economy that could have helped people in rural areas. It could have given them a sense that the arrow is pointed in the right direction. I always use our Blue Ridge Parkway as an example, which you know, runs through the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina and West Virginia that FDR built in the 1930s mm-hmm. uh, as a jobs creator. And you know, about 100 years later, it's the backbone of the North Carolina and Virginia tourism industry. So you know, it's a twofer. It's both an immediate counter-cyclical benefit and a long-term investment. And so there need to be some fundamental structural economic uh, proposals that give people a sense that that they are included, that their identity matters, that they don't have to leave you know, Western North Carolina and come to the Triangle uh, as the only way of a, of a better uh, opportunity for, for, for their children in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is rapport that... You know, people said Joe Biden had that, Hillary Clinton didn't. And so some of that is just basic rapport and respect that, you know, uh, we may disagree, um, but, you know, I respect you and your lifestyle. You know, there's an element that we're not talking about. There's an element, you know, the extreme white nationalists and very right. frightening people. Right. Um, and that's going to be there in every society. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of people that were looking for something. Uh, and Trump was the only one that that really offered it. And as I said, you you know the the political scientists who studied this showed some of that vote went for Bernie in the Democratic primary because he was going to shake things up. So there are some things to work with there that our domestic policy friends have to have to get on the ball about. So is is it uh, then you know more a question of acknowledgement by political elites of of that? Of the different of the different aspects, uh, I mean, is that where political elites have to have to go uh, to avoid simply having Trump control, you know, the the re- that entire kind of agenda? Because remember, as you're, I'm sure, well aware, uh, Trump voters in some cases were Obama voters previously. That's right, because the same thing. He was shaking up the system. Uh, even though he was African American, and some mm-hmm. of the some of the vote, you know, was was resentment of that. But some of you're exactly right, and so I'll give you an example. And and it's not just you know sort of saying I feel your pain, <laughs> because people will see through that in a nanosecond. Right. It's what are you going to do about it? You know. So um, in that same uh, symposium in Democracy Journal of Ideas that my liberal order isn't coming back article. There's another article by very savvy economist named Jen, Jennifer Harris, mm-hmm. who worked in the Obama administration for a while, is now out at the Hewlett Foundation. And by the way, you, she'd be good to bring into your program because she knows a lot about trade. Okay. And, and she made an argument there that we needed to break out of the dichotomy of free trade and protectionism and relate trade policy more to domestic inequality issues. Mm-hmm. And so one example <laughs> there, you know, is uh, the repatriation of profits, the lack thereof, 
of large American corporations, Apple, etc., that have expanded globally and found nice little tax shelters in Ireland and Luxembourg and elsewhere. Yet American policy promotes their opportunities to expand their markets and expand their revenue and stuff and raises the question of whether or not there needs to be, you know, to a degree, a greater connection between the interests, the national economic interests, and and the interests of, of, of multinational corporations. Not going mercantilist, you know, my corporations against yours, American versus Chinese versus mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but in many respects, you know, why should the United States give all these tax breaks and all these other benefits to companies if they're not taking benefits of globalization more back into the country? And she makes a couple really interesting proposals in that article, and, and the Hewlett Foundation is actually working on this in a very fundamental way that are examples of how you could start to change it and get out of the free trade versus protectionism, which is, you know, doesn't capture yeah. all of the issues that are out there in international trade. So it's just one example uh, of ways that you could expand this, this circle of winners, if you will, from globalization without, you know, stopping globalization. Right, uh, right. Well, to some degree, uh, and it's for another time, but the Trump administration, whether you like them or not, or the administration, whether you like it or not, has moved towards um, assisting these companies to repatriate on the basis of the tax changes that they've been making. Uh, so we'll s- go ahead. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, I, I think they've put more emphasis on, you know, let's help the steel industry because it's more visible well. <laughs> and, you know, soybean and, you know, cranberries, yeah, uh, sugar. Yeah. For sure, uh, all these issues, you know. Yeah. So, for sure, let let me switch a little bit over in in that article, though, uh, to uh, you know your view, which is that you have not, you did not intentionally want to focus on Trump. Um, he, um, you know, uh, he seemed to make every problem uh, worse, according to your your view. Perfectly. Perfectly sensible, um, and uh, you know, critiques have to be made. But you know, this is this is not the formative aspect of what I want to argue. I guess I didn't quite see the point. Why isn't it that we see that the international system today is really increasingly a function of our good friend Mr. Trump? Um, he withdrew from the long negotiated TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership of the previous administration. He then withdrew from, although it'll take some time, he withdrew from the Paris Agreement on the question of climate change. He then withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. His policy, you know, kind of dominates on the Korean Peninsula, and I have a couple questions on that as we go forward. Um, And he withdrew most recently from the G7 communique after signing it. It it sure looks to me like, why wouldn't we focus on Donald Trump? Well, because in writing this article, everybody else is doing what you just said. Okay. You know, and I think we know that. We all know what's wrong with Trump. And, you know, one of the interesting things is um, this whole notion of liberal international order you know, in the last 18 months has been invoked more often, not just by academics, but by talking heads on TV, mm-hmm. you know, by people in the Washington Post uh, than ever before, right? If you said it three years ago, people would have said, oh, you're, you're being an academic. Everybody invokes it. <laughs> and the problem is, if we attribute, you know, so much to Trump, we don't get at the issues you and I were talking about before, 
which was the underlying problems that were, you know, really weakening the liberal international order before he came along. And and the thrust of this article, mm-hmm. which is by no means the be on the end all, is to say, sure. we're going to offer an alternative other than, you know, Trump's chocolate, we like vanilla. Uh, we have to really think about, you know, what is the optimal system for the 21st century going forward, you know, on all of these areas, global peace, prosperity, and security, and, you know, one more piece about how terrible Trump is. I mean, I do those. I'll get out on Twitter and do those and write the occasional op-ed. Um, but I actually, I, I feel like we know that, you know, and, and I think it, it, it sometimes it feeds the um, uh, very um, rose-colored view of the liberal international order as if if Trump just went away and we could go back to where we were, all would be good, and my argument is no, it was in trouble before that. And that's the reason. It's not to undervalue uh, or undercriticize what Trump is doing, um, but it's really to say, you know, I don't know, it's like it's like having an investment portfolio, short-term investments, All that's all about stopping Trump, <laughs> the sooner the better, uh, and your medium and long-term is about, you know, a different thing, and that's that's where I'm trying to Sir, you were looking people. more at the medium-term. Uh, yeah, notwithstanding, yeah. you weren't, you know, you weren't kind of putting aside uh, the immediate, which is pretty evident to all of us watching, uh, watching the day to day. Right, but politically too. I mean, you know, I've been involved in these things a yes. lot directly, and yep. you know, if Democrats want to offer an alternative to Trump, uh, they really need to be thinking about, first of all, in deep policy terms, you know, what makes sense for the second and third decades of the 21st century. And then translate that to communications messages, but it's not just patchwork. Um, you know, we like we like the Paris deal. We like this. We like that. It, it's gotta it's gotta have more cohesiveness to it. You really, I mean, at, at one level that certainly makes sense, but at another, politically and political strategy might dictate, at least in the short term, simply being anti-Trump. Uh, it doesn't go that far. I mean, that's that's the Trump, that's the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton differentiation. Mm-hmm. You know, she was being a very traditional Democrat, and Bernie, and again, this is not an advocacy of Bernie, uh, was saying, you know, we need we need more profound change, and for a, you know, as we often say, for a grumpy, seventy-four-year-old guy from Vermont to do as well as he did in the Democratic primaries, including with some of these. You know, Rust Belt voters, uh, notwithstanding that he wasn't your ideal candidate as a person, that really tells us something. You know, and and so I, I do think it's politically realistic as well. You know, again, you know, communications people got to translate it, but you know, we're at, we're at a transition point where you got to get your ideas right and then turn it over the communication okay. people. So let me let me just uh, go back uh, to to look at one of the, some of the aspects that. Uh, one aspect in particular that you focused on in terms of the, you know, the the strain, the the coming apart of the liberal international order, you you certainly focused on the underperforming international institutions, and in particular, you raised in your article um, the uh, the UN, uh, and I take it that part of the focus make and it makes sense was your previous work and we'll talk about it in a moment your new book The Peacemakers um, and you focused one of your chapters on the Secretary General uh, Dog, Dog Hammarskjöld uh, 
but you, the focus then in the article on the international institution was only on the formal institutions, or primarily on the formal institutions, and not the the informals. What I call the rise of the informals, that you know really leads to that whole kind of GX world, G7, G20. Um, many, in fact, would today looking at the international system suggests that these formal institutions have kind of reached their best use before date that you know we're kind of we don't see the the future direction of these things so why would you be focusing on uh, the formal institutions that were generated you know literally 70 years ago well, a couple reasons. One, I, I, I do include both. I talk about, that's the part of my pluralization of diplomacy in that article. Mm -hmm. You know, it talks about informal institutions and different relationships. So I don't, I don't in any way exclude those. On, on, but I do feel that the role of informal institutions, the role of so-called non-state actors, uh, you know, people talked about the book. I have a chapter in the book about philanthropy statesmanship that looks at the role of the Gates Foundation in global public health. Mm -hmm. you know, another chapter on human rights organizations as peacemakers and stuff. But they can only be supplements to the role of, you know, public sector actors, be it national governments or, you know, international institutions established by national governments. Uh, I don't in any way see them supplanting them. I just don't think, you know, the nature of the international system still, for whatever changes we've had, the nation state is still the core organizing unit. And it's not as exclusive as it was however many years ago you want to go back. Uh, so my, my prospect is, yes, absolutely, the informals, the non-state actors have important roles. They often do things better than state actors do. Uh, human rights groups can are willing to call attention to atrocities that that governments often prefer to look the other way at, mm -hmm. uh, which is a crucial role, but they still have to get governments or formal international institutions to act. So there's a balance point there that that's not. It's, my approach is not either or in the article nor in the book. Right. Um, but I think that if we, you know, the underperforming international institutions, like we need to we need to fix them. Sometimes it's a new institution. Uh, sometimes it's fixing the existing ones. Okay, so that's your focus. But, you know, in the informals, of course, you do have the state-driven um, institutions, particularly the leadership-led um, uh, um, in, uh, informals, like the G7, which we just saw meeting, or the G20. So there are, obviously, state-level uh, informal institutions, not just the non-state actors and the you know, the private corporations and the foundations, et cetera, et cetera. And in that regard, I wanted to kind of shift you over to your new book called The Peacemakers, Leadership Lessons uh, from the 20th Century State, from 20th Century Statesmanship. And in the kind of the uh, blurb and PR related to the book, uh, it suggested uh, you know, in the 20th century, according to this uh, blurb, great leaders played vital roles in making the world a fairer, more peaceful place. But the world is very different today, as you've just described to us, and has changed a great deal in the last 70 years. Um, so, um, why then should we be concerned with historical figures and their actions in, pre in the previous kind of system? 
Well, I think that, you know, the, the book does try to look at major breakthroughs, mm-hmm. you know, and part of my answer is, you know, we could go back to when I was an undergraduate taking intro international relations and I had a <laughs> professor and a TA who told us to study the World War One and all those periods, but... Uh, I can't remember who that TA was, but in any event... <laughs> can't imagine who that might be. <laughs> um, you know, so there, so there are lessons. And in the book, yeah. I, I, I draw out strategies. But let me, if, if you'll indulge me for a second, sure. let me just read you one quick quote, quote that I use in the book. And, okay. and it says, because it relates to, I think, one of the things you're thinking about, about, you know, social media and the like. So, for our everyday life is becoming so saturated with the tremendous power of mass communications... Our political life is becoming so expensive, so mechanized, and so dominated by professional politicians and public relations men that the idealist who dreams of independent statesmanship is rudely awakened by the necessities of election and accomplishment. Okay, that's from Profiles in Courage by Kennedy, written in 1956, right? So this notion of, you know, how difficult things are because of technology, communications, media changes has had different manifestations. And Mm -hmm. we can make an argument that I think is fair that says, well, you know, the instantaneousness of social media leaves decision makers less time for, you know, deliberation and things like that. That's true, but it's not a totally new phenomenon. And ultimately, it's continuity and change, the mix. I don't see anything in the 21st century world that fundamentally negates, you know, the lessons to be learned from Gorbachev in the end of the Cold War, or Kissinger and Joe and Lai and, you know, the U.S.-China summit, or Hammarskjöld at the U.N. or the like. I think they have to be adapted, uh, but but I don't think our world is so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I feel within the United States, we fall into a woe is usism, like, oh, it's so much worse. You know, wasn't it great in the previous periods? And then you, you dig down and you see, well, let's see, we had, you know... <laughs> Slavery, and we had internment camps for Japanese Americans, etc., etc., etc. So, so, so clearly, you're suggesting is looking at leadership and the change and the breakthrough. That that's really what drove your examination of these 20th century leaders. Uh, that, uh, and then the question becomes. Because it intrigued me when I was listening. Uh, uh, to your examination of you know these so-called transformational moments, these breakthroughs, what if someone were now to argue that Trump should be seen in this light on the question of nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula? What would you say in, to that? Uh, if, in fact, he had achieved at the summit or he achieves in the follow-on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a fundamental change in... Uh, North Korean nuclear weapons, uh, and more than that, then sure. But I don't see that. Okay. And moreover, even when Obama did the Iran deal in 2015, um, you know, I'd served in the Obama administration 2009-2011. I was out of the administration then. And, and my comments to my friends in the administration and elsewhere was this is an important deal. But ultimately... You know, it alone will not be able to bear the weight of, you know, the overall relationship. If the overall relationship uh, uh, remains as highly conflictual as it's been. Okay. And it will ultimately need to move just like it wasn't just the INF Treaty with with Gorbachev and Reagan. Uh, It will ultimately need to other moves to build on that towards finding some sort of 
you know, rapprochement is too strong a word, detente too strong, but, but accommodation on other things. And in that sense, I think I was right, not by any means justifying Trump reneging on the agreement. Uh, so if we had a North Korea agreement just on the nuclear issue, I don't think it would be able to bear the weight unless the overall geopolitics of the region changed, if mm-hmm. less North Koreans were, were convinced that it was policy change, not regime change. If all that was achieved, it would be a major breakthrough. Uh, you know, that would be the stuff that, you know, his, his, his claim of, you know, Nobel Prize would, although I would include President Moon for sure, as well as Kim. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I don't see that. We can talk more about what's in there and what's not in there. I don't, I don't see that in any way in this one piece of paper that basically says, isn't it great that we had a meeting? Isn't it great that we had a meeting? Nobody else has done this before. Isn't it great that we had a meeting? And that's basically all it says. Yeah, the declaration, as many, many of our colleagues have suggested, is rather thin gruel. Um, and in a certain sense, it, you know, it, fall, it falls in part to his uh, Secretary of State, uh, in particular, Pompeo, to, to try to move the yardsticks on an actual, as you were describing it, an actual deal and not just, we had a meeting. So we'll have to, from that perspective, we'll have to wait and see, I suspect. Um, well, let me let me just follow up on that for a second because I think that you know in the so I two of the chapters in the book are on um, you know two major breakthroughs in, in 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 geopolitics and one was the U.S. China opening yes and the roles particularly Kissinger and Joe and Lai yeah and then Gorbachev and to a certain extent Reagan and the argument I make out of that is what I call in the book the three P's that why did those happen what to make those kind of breakthroughs happen you need to find common policy ground manage your domestic politics and develop you know personal rapport among the principles right and that happened in both those cases so i did write a piece in foreignpolicy.com before the summit you know looking at the lessons there and i and i said you know trump and kim are reasonably well positioned to manage the domestic politics for reasons i think we can both understand Mm -hmm. i was very worried about the common policy grant because denuclearization i mean even in the summit statement it says denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Well, does that mean the American security umbrella, including nuclear deterrence, over the Republic of Korea? Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't just say denuclearization of the possession of nuclear weapons. And we've already seen back and forth about whether sanctions all get lifted at the end or they're sequenced. And so, in in both the U.S. China and the um, and the and the U.S. Soviet Union cases, you had a roadmap. And you had statements that conveyed, you know, sufficient common policy ground on which to build. We don't see that. So for Pompeo to work this out, there's nothing to work it out on. Mm-hmm. And then the last point was the was the personal chemistry. And you know, and I said again before the meeting, I, I don't expect the intellectual uh, camaraderie of, of Kissinger and Joe and Lai, <laughs> or the personal warmth of Reagan and Gorbachev to be matched. Um, <laughs> to be matched. But you know, having come out of the uh, you know, uh, you know, extraordinary treatment of of your prime minister and and other allies. Um, you know, what would Kim expe- expect? I mean, if if Trump says it's regime change, policy change, not regime change. Well, let's see. I just saw how you treated your friends. Yeah. Uh, I I know what happened in Libya. I know what happened in Iraq. So none of that is there, and I don't know how that gets built on an issue this complex afterwards um and so i think we'll study this as a 
another case study down the road, you know, in our own work and with our students uh, of summit failure, not summit success. Okay. Uh, well, that's an important point because I wanted to take you to the G7 and our good f- uh, friend, the president's uh, reversal on signing off on the communique. <clears throat> and I guess the question it, it, it creates, particularly for his allies, uh, is why should any leader now trust Trump and what he says? And, and therefore, what should you know current leadership... Uh, be doing. I mean, in the face of, obviously, the meeting of the G7, but we are coming up to the G20 in late November. uh, President uh, Macri, who is the president of Argentina, faces a what appears to be a rather daunting task in kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, channeling uh, President Trump. So what's your recommendation there? Well, I think, and this goes back to the liberal article, article to a certain extent. Yep. You know, I, I actually think that it would be in everybody's interest, and frankly, I believe the United States is, if um, the other, let's start with the G7, with Europeans and Canada, uh, stop trying to appease the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trudeau tried, it failed. Macron tried big time. Yes. And failed. Yeah. Uh, even Angela Merkel tried a little bit initially, and look what she got. And Theresa May, you know. And I actually think there is uh, a place for. Let me at least talk about European interests now, mm-hmm. that are you know overlap with U.S. interests, but not totally. Uh, so, for example, you know, even during the Obama years, many of the European countries signed up right away for the AIIB, right, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, when even Obama opposed it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they believe it was their interest to do so. And so if we think about the Western alliance as more of a Venn diagram where there's big areas that are double shaded, right, that overlap, but other areas in which we each have distinct interests. And it would be silly and counterproductive for Europe just to do things that were anti-American just to, you know, uh, get back at Trump if it wasn't in their own interest. So I do think we're evolving to a world in which that's the pluralization of diplomacy, that there's lots of different interests that countries will have with each other. Mm-hmm. And some of that, I think, should, should carry over to the G20. But um, And again, I would have said this even if Trump wasn't being Trump and the, the you know really you know unprecedented diplomatic things he did to the allies at the G7. It's this, it's this shift in the nature of the order that, you know, acknowledges that we had, you know, even in the, you know, the, the Cold War, we didn't have perfectly overlapping interests. And historically, we've had interests that are a mix of convergent and divergent. And I think it's everybody's interest, including Americans, for, for, for that to evolve more in terms of what countries do. So I, I take it, and you mentioned uh, Chancellor Merkel, who seemed to try to... Um, you know, kind of warm up to the president, but that didn't seem to go very far. And then if we look at her, uh, the Hamburg uh, G20 summit, you know, for the first time really in a formative way, you've got a, uh, a division between the 19 and, and, and 1, and in this case the 1 is the United States, in terms of the statement around at least uh, climate change. The Paris Agreement, and that was the first time because up until then, consensus drove the system of the G20, and if they couldn't agree, then that was you know off the table. But that was not here. 
So are you suggesting that or look at the TPP-11, the decision by the various actors in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, now agreed to by 11, excluding the United States, in which they've driven forward um, on a collective trade policy? Yeah, absolutely. If that's in their interest, and, and, and not only in a selfish way, but they believe it contributes to 21st century order, Mm-hmm. Then, then you pursue that. Um, okay. And in some ways it comes back to your informals, right? So what's happened since Trump withdrew from the Paris Agreement? You have the we're still in movement in the United States bringing together, you know, the mayors of major cities, some governors, uh, some huge, you know, corporations. Uh, you read in a magazine from the uh, insurance industry now. And it sounds like Al Gore wrote it. I mean, because, you know, <laughs> they insure hotels on Miami Beach. And I heard on the radio today a new study about our Cape Hatteras out here. And within 30 years, the number of homes that will be regularly flooded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you try to make up for, you know, Trump pulling the United States out with whatever percentage of American compliance with our commitments under Paris through other actors. It won't get you the whole thing. Yes, as it would if the president of the United States uh, was was working with you, but it'll get you a piece. And I think it's the same way for other countries. What's best for the world? Uh, manage the you know uh, uh, you know the outcry and the fallout with the Trump administration, but go out and do what you think is really best, and um, we'll take it from there. Okay. Well, let me let me end on, on with this question, uh, kind of the big question. So you suggested that you know Trump underscores the notion that leaders matter, which was, of course, the, the central component of your book, The Peacemakers. So if you were preparing to write the chapter on Trump, what would you be writing? Oh, well, I don't think I would include him in a book called The Peacemaker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do include people, and I acknowledge that, it, like including Kissinger and John Lai, it's not an endorsement of his whole foreign policy, Vietnam, sure. Chile, etc. But it's to learn from the particular, that particular act of statesmanship. And in fact, you know, none of the stories I tell are perfect piece. Um, that would be a very thin book, unfortunately. Right. Uh, but um, but it really gets to. We were going through a period of, you know, can you be a leader anymore? And you know, the whole question of leaders make history and, and history makes leaders. Right. And I, I take this middle ground. I did my three P's before, so I'll do my three C's, which mm-hmm. is any leader, and this goes for the private sector or anywhere else, faces constraints on breakthroughs, major change. Uh, at the same time, there may be conducive conditions with which to work. But when, you know, but when it's really about an individual playing a crucial role, it's that domain of choice, the choice within the constraints and conducive conditions that matters. And I start the book with an epigram from Isaiah Berlin. You know, always a good idea to quote Isaiah Berlin, right? <laughs> uh, but I think it fits. Uh, and he says, at crucial moments and at turning points, individuals in their decisions and acts can determine the course of history. And part of it is, you know, when we go through our international relations, you know, scholarly training, we pay very little attention to individuals. It's mostly about institutions and timeless things like balance of power, national interest. Mm -hmm. And then when you, you know, operate inside the beltway, it's all about personality. Uh, And so this is an effort to find a middle ground. And for every case I have in here, 
including the founders of the contemporary human rights movement, I make an argument that you know not another individual in that position would not have made the same choices and been able to carry them out, and that in in certain instances, a la Isaiah Berlin, we really need to look at the role of leadership, uh, and it can be done in negative ways. You know, Trump. Um, Germany was going to be unstable after World War One, no matter what. The particular form it took had a heck of a lot to do with Hitler. Um, so it can be negative, obviously, but it also can be positive. And part of the book is to show how things we thought would not be possible to make breakthroughs on. Mm-hmm. Uh, breakthroughs were made, and that's where I, I really believe there are lessons and maybe even inspiration for the 21st century agenda. Well, I didn't quite hear a chapter on uh, Donald J. Trump in that uh, discussion, but um, we have more time to examine him as he goes forward. It may be only negative, but uh, at the end of the day, there may indeed be lessons uh, to be drawn uh, from uh, from his leadership, from his presidency. I don't know your own thoughts on that, but... I, well, I, I think he's more, I, I don't see any reason for, you know, there was some sense, including among some of my Republican friends and colleagues after he got elected, that maybe he tacked to the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've seen enough to know that, you know, there are many aspects of him that are really quite frightening. And <laughs> I will say that, you know, I've had presidents I disagreed with before, mm-hmm. but I've never had one, and I say this honestly, not not partisan, that I thought was truly dangerous to the country and the world. So. Whatever book he's in, um, uh, it probably will not be titled Peacemakers. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you, Bruce, for taking this time from a rather busy schedule uh, to join uh, join us here on Shaking the Global Order series. I really do appreciate it here uh, at Global Summitry. So thank you. Thank you, Alan. Enjoyed it very much and all the best.